Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Offshore Insights Podcast, where we share captivating individuals and stories connected by water. I'm your host, Evan Luth. We're stoked you could join us today, and I hope you enjoy your listening experience. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Today we're celebrating a special first milestone as this is the 10th episode of the podcast. And I want to thank you all for joining me on the journey thus far. There's far more to look forward to in our future here, and I'm honored to have you along for the ride. In today's episode, I speak with Nick Satterpour about environmental conservation work, citizen science, and the integral relationship between public, private, and governmental sectors that is necessary to making lasting environmental policies. He works with the Sea Grant Program at the University of Southern California and is a federal agent tasked with providing local coastal communities with science to empower them to better manage their natural resources. Essentially, he is a dot connector between state and local government and academic research. Our discussion was very eye-opening for me personally, and if you've ever wondered how decisions are made that transform the face of your coastal communities or who's involved in that process, I'm sure you'll find it fascinating as well. Nick is an avid, lifelong ocean lover, surfer, and genuine outdoor enthusiast. I found great pleasure in knowing that people like him are earnestly giving all they can to fight the good fight and pushing for progressive environmental policies that protect the well-being of our coastal communities and environments. So without further ado, I give you episode number 10 with Nick Satterport. Nick? Welcome to the Offshore Insights, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm stoked you can make it, and um, it sounds like you got some really cool work going on, and it's cool to catch up on that briefly first. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, just kind of starting out, I was hoping maybe you could just give us a little bit of backstory uh, as far as your life growing up, any significant factors or influences that kind of put you on the path that you pursued as far as um, passions in academia and otherwise. Absolutely. Um, so, man, my dad is probably the biggest influence. I grew up in Westchester. It's this little town in Los Angeles right by uh, LAX, and um, it's, it's really strange. I, I never can actually like, figure out how he got into it, because he, he was born in Tehran, in Iran, uh-huh. and came over in the 70s with the revolution and everything, and he got like scuba certified, I want to say, in, in Missouri or Arkansas, wow. somewhere, <laughs> uh, Kansas, like in a lake, and... <laughs> I like I could never understand why he would ever kind of start there, but sure. then you know, growing up, it was always beach days and going body surfing. He's he was he's much more into scuba diving and open ocean swimming than anything. Um, so I got scuba certified as a twelve year old and wow, got really just really into it. Um, and you know, and through school, I I didn't really I was always really good at math and science, and that kind of led itself into environmental science and you know I had some really really instrumental professors and teachers who kind of shared their experiences of Mm -hmm. what what works 
what worked for them and what they kind of just start pursuing. And, and from there, I started just kind of pulling things I was interested in, you know, following that lead and, and following that, that string. And it led me to doing cool scuba diving transects on kelp forests and looking at urchin barrens with, with nonprofits or doing... Um, and some of this is international, right? Most of my stuff has really been California okay. focused. Yeah. Um, there's been there's been one cool project that I did get to do uh, that was off of a survey in Chile, oh, cool. um, off of uh, surfers in Puche Lemu that led to like a surfonomic study. Yeah. Through Save the Waves. Oh, I read about that. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Cool. So that was cool. Involved. That was in that was in grad school. Just like again, kind of pulling strings, meeting the right people, and just talking and uh-huh. you know trying to share skills I I have and and help along with projects that I can I believe in and that I'm interested in and. You know, now I, I work for the University of Southern California Sea Grant Program, which is we are a, a federal state non federal state university um, organization that that funds coastal and ocean research that all has management applications, and I work as a science research and policy specialist. Um, so it's fun. It's it's a very broad title, but I think it you know in classic extension work, which is is what we do. It's, it's connecting the dots between academics and hardcore science research. Right. And then um, natural resource policy manager, natural resource managers and, you know, people designing the policy for those managers right. of what, you know, what do we do with the coast? How do we keep access? How do you promote healthy and thriving ecosystems while balancing users from people harvesting fish and kelp maybe or energy from wind and from tides and waves to people harvesting ways to surf or beach to lounge and enjoy themselves and recreate. So in many ways you're kind of the the translating component and the liaison between empowering communities with scientific research and evidence. That... I'd, I'd like to believe so. Um, it, it, is a, <laughs> it is definitely an art of communication and yeah. it's um, what, what I enjoy about it is kind of you do have to wear a lot of hats and probably the most important thing is to you get to be interacting with different audiences. So right. when you're in Sacramento talking with somebody from Fish and Wildlife, they have a different perspective than somebody who's in um, Encinitas looking at erosion problems. Yeah. Or, you know, when you're talking with Coastal Commission staff, their mandate and their regulations are, you know, what they live and breathe. That's their, right. that's what they do. And that might not always come across in some of the actions. But I think when you get down to it, what they value and what, uh, you know, private property coastal homeowner values is pretty much the same thing. It's that, it's the California dream. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful coast, beautiful resources, yeah, I mean that's kind of the irony of when these um, <clears throat> diatribes form, you know, where, where people begin, you know, throwing stones at one side or the other. It's, yep. it's really you're all wanting this, you know, it's as you put, the same the thing. Dream. It's just you're on different sides of, you know, in what order or what priority which things get. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, first of all, like, how cool is being able to say you're a federal agent? <laughs> so yeah, it's it's neat. It's what's nice is that. So I'm, my organization is within NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and I'm so happy I get to say that. Yeah. Like, it's super, I think it's super cool. It is. I think NOAA's <laughs> rad. Um, but at the same time, like, I'm, I'm not a Fed, so right. I'm not a federal employee. Right. I'm all grant funded yeah. through NOAA. And so, you know, you can, I get to navigate these different settings where, you know, I was in a review committee where I was the only non-governmental person. It's like I'm associated wow. with the government, but I'm still, you know, I'm technically university staff. And what's really neat about the Sea Grant program is that each coastal and Great Lakes state has one. 
So you're in Michigan, there's a sea grant program that's working on their wow. issues, whether that's invasive species or water quality or rip currents in a Great Lake. Wow. Like there, there's somebody there doing that same thing. In Alabama, you know, you have somebody. In Texas, you have somebody. In New York. different branches in communication with each other in terms yeah, of Yeah, so we have a, a, a national sea grant program um, within the NOAA office, and those are the kind of the feds hmm. of sea grant. And then each program, like USC, there's also California Sea Grant out of UCSD. We have mm-hmm. two in California. Wow. Um, there's two in... In typical fashion. Yeah, California. it's, it's <laughs> strange. There's, I think, what's the other one? Uh, Woods Hole and MIT are the, is the only state that, that has two. Right. But Guam has one, Puerto Rico has one, and all of these organizations are you know, pretty much designed to help that local stakeholder, whether that's a... Um, fishing village of mm. nomadic people in Alaska. Um, one of my colleagues I met through kind of the, the National Sea Grant Getting Together meetings is this lady who works in Nome, Alaska, where they hunt walrus for substance. Like, yeah. And she's dealing with those issues, oh. which I have, right. I can't even imagine. But then I show her a picture of, you know, a couple thousand people at Venice. And right. like, we're dealing with tourism and transportation. And she's like, Completely. whoa. Yeah. But we try to function in that same role of, you know, community or stakeholder can kind of come to us and we're not a consultant, so we're not charging them money. We're trying to just provide them information and resources and help connect the dots to solve an issue. Um, because what we, I mean, what I, we always try to say is, you know, there's, there's a, a place forward. There's, there was a big fight with marine protected areas and fishermen mm-hmm. when all, when all the marine protected areas were being designed and, you know, it's, it's essentially their livelihood in the long term, even though that might not have always been framed that way. Right. So I think Sea Grant was a, a can be used as a bridge to help communities kind of see that there's a better way forward for mm-hmm. all of us to at least try to preserve and maintain what we want out sure. of these resources. And just kind of changing the language a bit of it yeah. too, so they better yeah. understand. And yeah. you know, it's it's definitely how you approach it when you come in as the state agent or federal agent. Right. Right. It's, it's different auspices than somebody who's associated with university, a local university, or somebody who's just a researcher, um, or somebody from the city. You know, sure. it's, it's a different point of view. So, in that example of um, this woman in Alaska, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty extreme example, right? A fascinating one. Yeah. From for the duality that you mentioned, where you know, hey, this is Santa Monica. This is what we're looking at. This is our backyard. Right. How can we integrate some of these same models or whatever approaches and help you mm-hmm. on this scale or in this kind of different environment? I mean, to what extent do you, when working in areas like that, would you or your organization involve local people, you know, and, and, and source that as your kind of intel? So pretty much all the time. I, th- I think e- each program functions differently, but ideally it's when we try to build partnerships and, and connect those dots, it's using all the information you have and providing maybe information that is not always easy to get to, but it's publicly available mm-hmm. to help people make the most informed decision. Um, we, there's been a lot of, uh, maybe not pur- purposeful, but exclusion of say tribal, tribal governments sure. within natural resource management in California, but everywhere. Yeah. And this idea of traditional environmental knowledge or, somehow cultural environmental knowledge of, you know, I, I translate that to somebody's been fishing or surfing or, you know, this tribe has been here for hundreds of years, but you have the guy who's been surfing a break for 40 years. 
they probably have a good understanding of what's happened there in the past, both from a physical setting, like what kind of storms come through in the winter or the summer, what kind of fish are running, what are the birds doing maybe, sure. to also how have we influenced it? What have people done from a sediment management, from uh, just access development, changes in the upper watershed? Just a broader historical perspective. Yeah, more, you know, we, yeah. maybe we hunted something to oblivion sure. one year. There was a huge die-off of anchovies that cascaded through the, the, right. the trophic cascade. Um, so you, you try to bring in those points of knowledge and also bring in the hardcore scientists that are looking at you know more tra- academic traditional mm-hmm. things and then you get the state manager or the local manager and you try to just figure understand all their perspectives and enlighten everybody in a frame of mind that's like we're all here for like we were saying before for the same reason we're all here to ensure that people can fish here that people yeah. can swim here safely and not get sure. sick that quality of life and environment exactly yeah. it's like nobody i've never met somebody that's out to exploit a resource knowingly or knowingly least, yeah. or like impacted impact. community knowingly yeah. or sure. you know there's always there's always people are always want to be the good guy and yeah. giving them the tools or providing them maybe that that frame of reference of hey maybe the state agency isn't all that bad that you're making right. out to be like they're sure. they're enforcing this mandate that was put into law by somebody else yeah and they're yeah. that funk they're that functioning arm that you're experiencing right but it's yeah, bigger. it's funny. That just made me think of, um, and I, I noticed when I was doing some research on you, you had a red wall, Shane Nichols' Blue Mind or something. Yeah, like yeah. And um, I was listening to him talk about the uh, turtle hunters down in Mexico and how basically they were, you know, doing it because it was whatever. They didn't, you know, they didn't understand the system and it was an easy way to make an income in yep. a very low income area. And really what they had to go in and do to, in order to change that was to incentivize them not doing that yep. to take care of the turtles, you know. So it's just kind of this re-education, changing the language, you know, and, and just an awareness component. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, in, in incentive, like the carrot stick model within, right. I mean, I've, I think I've just started to become, try to become more aware of government and regulations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough because there's ways legislatures put in carrots that maybe don't always get the response that you want sure or the stick is just like too over the top to really like manage the resource that well right um but really like what you're saying you gotta most of the time those situations you have folks that are going out there doing something for their livelihood i mean i in in venice we're we're i'm working with the city on updating the city venice is within the city of la mm-hmm uh, and each coastal segment on California has what's called a local coastal plan. And that's essentially what um, gives power from the coastal commission, state coastal commission to the city. So before a city or segment, an area has a local coastal plan that's certified, all of their permitting decisions have to be gone in front of the coastal commission. Gotcha. To get some of that power and to put actually to put the power back in the hands of locals is right. the design is this framework of a, a local coastal plan. And, um, even at the sea level rise meetings where we're looking at what's, you know, what are the flooding vulnerabilities in Venice? What's the erosion looking like? Like how threatened could Venice be from sea level rise? A lot of the conversation is about gentrification. It's about right. rent prices. Um, it's about these big companies coming in and changing the culture of Venice which you can totally understand. Um, and as somebody who wanted to have the conversation about sea level rise and flooding, it's like, sure, you're, you have so many valid points. I don't think that this is kind of this is like a, 
adjacent venue. Yeah. yeah, it's not. It's definitely not unimportant. But this isn't really the topic at hand. And so you kind of get to that. What are these people's basic needs? Right. And maybe some of these environmental conditions aren't those immediate things that they're worried about, like looking at you know harvesting turtles. It's, sure. You know, maybe those those people are like, I'm looking to feed my family today, tomorrow, right. Um, right. next week, not. A turtle population. Yeah, I mean, it's very rarely a nefarious yeah. act. It's, it's, it's really out of necessity, like you said. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's it's tough to have those conversations and building in incentives. And still being respectful to local culture and yeah. not, you know, totally. being in any way ethnocentric. Totally. Like approach, you know, or I mean, whatever. Or, th- or, you know, whitewashing it in some way. And w- there's been some programs where we've tried to really promote that. I think, I mean, just the, the state of our federal government, it's not that great, but... You know, you got to start small with different communities. There's been a couple state initiatives that have that have tried to bridge that gap with sure. tribal governments. Um, it's just always really tough. Uh, it's not there's there's a lot of tribes and they don't always agree with each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I think a lot of their practices and their history has been has not really been presented well, and it's really hard to find that information just because kind of came in and blew it all out so it seemed almost like the achilles heel um in modern era between getting you know the the very few times the government has given an open ear and an open mind to yeah. tribal communities and tribal lands that they can't necessarily you know um become cohesive in, in what it is that they really need you know and that there is these um well whatever you know differences between the tribes you yeah. know and it's unfortunate because it kind of it's like it uh, you know, you, you don't want to tell them come together, agree totally, because yeah. that's no, not our place to say. However, obviously, it keeps a it greater good a good from happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I and and I think if you go spend some time in the North Coast, you can see some tribes doing some really cool stuff for sure. That and are bringing back some of that cultural awareness to uh-huh. even outsiders, which is yeah. which is neat. Yeah, I mean, it seems like these days so much of what stands in the way of um, you know creating real meaningful change in environmental policy is kind of this. You know, are the barriers, you know, uh, are, are the barriers rather and the kind of communication breakdowns between, you know, academia and the private sector and the, you know, the so-called general public. Yep. And, you know, these are all kind of siloed communities, you know, speaking into these echo chambers. And unfortunately, that obviously doesn't get out of there, you know, for that orientation. And I just think there's so much greater transparency and collaboration that could be going on that really would, you know, progress things at the potential levels that we'd like to see them at, you know. And yeah. it seems like that's pretty much the crux of what your work is, really, as far as your position. I mean, you're kind of, as you said, a bit of this diplomatic liaison between these groups. You know, what do you think, what are your thoughts on the disparity between these groups? And, you know, how can we better disseminate this information? So that we can empower the public as well as the private and the academic sectors and kind of yeah. provide the greatest utility in our society. It's, it's a very complex question, right. um, but it, it's, <laughs> I love it and it's something I think about a lot because you're exactly right. The scientific community especially is, is really solid. You know, the journals that get published and what a tenure track right. faculty members job besides educating younger scientists is to publish papers. publish work publish right. papers and be you know get their name their university's name their organization's name as many high profile high power um, articles as possible right and you know 
So in a way, they're almost incentivized to stay within the parameters. A little bit. A little well. bit. Yeah. And, and it's really it's it's interesting sometimes when we have you know grant funding opportunities that are very management application focused um, to have these conversations where you know maybe in their proposal it'll say very minimally about how this work will be disseminated to the very appropriate manager of water quality, for right. example, or, or even uh, the people that it affects directly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like whatever watershed they're looking at, yeah. the people in that area. Sure. And I think that's, that's changing a bit, uh, just because the, the people who are now going through grad school, whether it's masters or a PhD program, uh, I mean, social media has done so much good. And I think that's one of the goods is, is it's allowed scientists to connect and share mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. you know, just in, I mean, Ted, I don't know how long Ted talks about Iran, but I would say 15 years, right? Like 15, 20, maybe 20 years, but but like the amount of science that gets out of there to people who would never hear it Uh is outstanding. And I think there's interesting point. There's other social media avenues that have been, you know, or even like NPR. Less exclusive at least. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of broken down that you have to be a scientist to understand this. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think the scientists themselves want their work to be impactful. Like they're, they're all striving, working in a lab, totally. or even ones doing field work. They want this work to mean something to somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there are ways to, bri- to, to bridge those gaps. And, and I do see Sea Grant as one of those ways. And I think, you know, there's, there's just, with the, when you, once you start to get to government, it's tough because everybody, not everybody, a lot of folks see the city is very different from them, mm. even if they live in that city. Sure. When the idea is you're a part of the you city, are, like yeah. you're you're a part of it. Yeah, there might be a few mm. people that through elections or whatever have been selected to make some of these more, you know, black white decisions about sure. what's funded or what how what direction things are going. But right. you're all in this together. Yeah. And it's it's scaled up at the state level and very scaled up at the federal level. Right. But Having having to get people some understanding of that government process, even just if it's public speaking, or understanding how there's committee committees or um, how a bill goes through the state <laughs> legislature is like really interesting, and that's yeah. something I didn't. I mean, I went through a fellowship program um, through California Sea Grant, which is our our sister organization, um, where I, I was a scientist working in state government and. You know, it really opens your eyes to like, wow, this is what government is. It's three separate branches that are very separate branches. And one of them decides all the rules and orders what the executive branch and all these agencies does. However, the executive branch, all of them respond to the administration that's in office at that moment. And then you have the judicial branch, which Mm -hmm. tests all the laws through arguments. Mm -hmm. And they're all looking at them through different criteria and filters and... Yeah, but as well, and it get, becomes even more you know granular in terms of separations within the sciences too. I mean, mm. like you said, all these scientists have the same intention of creating positive change right. or some positive benefit from their work. However, given the way that their brains function and given the work they do, they're so hyper focused and hyper specialized yeah. that no one's you know they, they don't speak the same language practically sometimes. You know? Exactly, and it, it's it's tough too because you have to have the funding aligned the right yeah. way where they're looking at. If you if you were talking about management, you know they have to be having their work look in a management lens. Um, given some of the federal cuts in funding, we I've at least started to see a little bit of shift of 
people now looking for other sources that may be more management focused and it, it is a little bit of a like oh you know tilting the head yeah like, oh i need to look over here right. now it's not yeah. just science for science yeah, sake. it's like what's, a little bit. Yeah. what's more practical yeah, I mean, it seems like I, I like that you pointed that out about um, you know social media and, and things like TED Talks because I mean you, it is easy to, to overlook or take that for granted rather that those have really become the most accessible right? and inclusive yeah. mediums. You know, podcasting. Otherwise, I mean, I was thinking about Radio Lab. You know, right? Radio Lab, like, exactly. Kind of their core mission, you know, is to bring the sciences and the, you know, the social and the natural sciences together and make it, you know more approachable, more digestible, yeah. bring a human element to it. And as a science nerd, I know I'm totally biased, but I think, you know, <laughs> it, tra- it, can, it can translate to other communities. Yesterday I went, um, big beach day for 4th of July. And, uh, one of, one of our friends wanted to go spearfishing and like, I love snorkeling. Uh-huh. So I was like, I'm, I, I was, I didn't want to go spearfishing or anything. So I was like, yeah, I'll go snorkeling with you. And you know, it was like, we're, two of the couple hundred people out here like actually going to look what's yeah, under the water right. uh, out there and yeah. saw some beautiful um, macrocystis like giant uh, giant brown kelp nice. California some nice state fish and Garibaldi's and we didn't see anything worth hunting but it was just gorgeous out yeah. there and you know it's it was really funny because he's He's a scientist guy, mm-hmm. so it, it's not fair, but, you know, thinking about, like, we're just hunting for different habitat because we know where halibut or some other type of species that we're interested in likes to go, so now we just got to go find where that is. Definitely better for your spearfishing. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> so, and it's like, well, that that's just science. Like, you're just making an educated right. decision yeah. based off of information that yeah. you've gathered over sure, a series of time approach, of yeah. observations and... Wow, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. It's true <laughs> with spearfishing. I mean, it's um, I, I've only just picked it up the last year myself, and I've, I've been very sparse when I've been going out. But um, and the, it's been pretty mixed for me. I've yeah. been, I haven't really poured viz, and then I'm yeah, getting used yeah. to gear, getting all oriented. Yep. I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm not there yet with my uh, enthusiasm about it because of dealing with all these growing pains, so to speak. But one of the things I was really appreciating, and, and part of what got me psyched on, was was talking with other very experienced spear fishermen and how and women how in tune they are to the environment to the signals oh, to yeah. you know the subtlest movements or whether it's them personally or, or the fish that they're watching or the particular kind yep. of kelp yep. or the, the reef ledge that you know it's yeah, so yeah. intricate and it's really a, a very astute you know practice you know? Funny. he saw a, a kelp a kelp patch kind of floating like pretty far not super far but kind of decently far out and like he was just on a mission to get there to right. see what was under it and then we got close to him he's like we're gonna go in slow just we're going real slow yeah. and take yeah. our time. Yeah. And I was like, all right, man, I'm just looking. It's I'm amazing how strategic it is. It's, yeah. it's really cool. I have such admiration and respect for, for really good fishermen, because spear fishermen. Cause you know, you, you watch what the birds are doing. You see if there's right. dolphins around. You can use these indicators exactly. to kind of make a more educated guess about yeah. what's out there. And I think that, um, I mean, the, the better spear fishermen that I know are all surfers. And I'm pretty sure all of them, I could be wrong, were surfers first. And I think that it probably translates both ways, but mm-hmm. I would imagine that, um, you know, given the fact that that's a lot of the same stuff you do when you're surfing, yeah. is reading conditions yep. and, and anticipating, predicting, that that translates very well. Yep. You know? Looking at storms. Looking yeah, at yeah. That's cool. I like that. And yeah. Well, um, I mean, you kind of touched on this earlier uh, with regards to, you know, involving local individuals or communities with uh, providing information, but... You know, citizen science obviously yeah. is kind of a buzzword these days, and um, you know, there's now numerous major scientific studies that have been made advancements in progress because of this kind of crowdsourced information. And um, you know, however, this is obviously not a new phenomenon. I mean, whether it's you know, 
uh, you know, monks looking at uh, climate change over time mm-hmm. over a century ago, you know, or Lewis and Clark, you know, yeah. Final Western Passage, or Darwin is kind of the poster child, yeah, right? you know, just this naturalist approach. This isn't a novel thing necessarily. However, it is kind of going through a bit of a resurgence, it seems, mm-hmm. and almost kind of a renaissance. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of cool because all these so-called, you know, non-credentialed people or unqualified into people, individuals, um, you know, they're, they're, they're making very valuable observations and data points to contribute to these studies, and that's so Definitely. important. Um, however, I also think that the term can be a bit confusing, and people kind of misunderstand it these days. So, so I guess, what does it really mean to you, and why do you think we're seeing such a rise in popularity now? Uh, I mean, I think this is the reason. Like, uh-huh. I'm going to look up a, a smartphone. So your, my yeah, your smartphone, uh, internet. Like, whenever somebody ask me about citizen science or crowdsourcing, you know, you can, I think Waze is the simplest way to explain uh-huh. it. The, the sure. traffic app. Yeah. It's like, all it's doing is taking information from everybody's cell phone about mm-hmm. how fast they're going on different roads or freeways, right. thoroughfares, and doing a calculation about the likely fastest route. And yeah. there's ways to input accidents or there's police ahead or, you know, whatever's going on. And that information is being used by this third party to provide better information to its users. Sure. And it's it's fantastic, it's phenomenal, it's really right. interesting. And if you apply it to environmental conditions, I think there's a lot of powerful, low-hanging fruit. Right. I don't like that expression, but sure. it's, you know, it's, no, it's true. if somebody's yeah. gonna be out there anyway, maybe have them collect some data and yeah. it can help provide some insight Absolutely. on, how, on what's going on. passive at that point. Exactly. So I, you know, I. It's cool. I mean, I we we have a couple <laughs> citizen science projects. It, that term, it's definitely like the buzzword right now. Right. And it's getting thrown out a lot. Um, you know, it's two sided. You there's a lot of data we can get. That's you know robust, high resolution, a lot of cool analysis can come from it. And then on the other side, you know, it's it's partly an education and outreach component or tool where, you know, this person's now gathering information about biodiversity. iNaturalist is a really big app where you can kind of go around a community. iNaturalist? iNaturalist, yeah. Take a photo of a bug and it'll put it on their database and you can see who's taking photos of other bugs or birds in your neighborhood. It's a no-brainer, right? Um, I have this bird app I really like. Merlin, that's um, cool. It's insanely good. Yeah. Like you can you can either go through a decision tree about you know where you are, what time, what right. like, what date you're there, how big was the bird, what was it doing, what are the colors, and I'll give you a list. Or you can upload a photo and it can do photogrammetry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no. um, to assess if like if it's the same bird. Or okay. Not. Yeah. And it's it's awesome. Yeah. And then for yeah, I've one for mushrooms. It's the same oh yeah kind of thing. Yeah. Foraging. Yeah. Cool. I, I'm just curious and getting into it and I've, yeah. I've been around and I was like oh wow they have an app for this yeah. I mean so I think like the <laughs> smartphone like model you, have, you have such computing you have data GPS access to data and such computing power right. in here and this right. little device that that's I think caused the resurgence sure um, but there's other groups uh, Smartfin from Surfrider mm-hmm. and Scripps right. and Lost Bird Project it's a future fin that sticks on your board it's got a GPS unit in there a uh, couple of accelerometers to know your angle and your position, and then a thermometer. Mm-hmm. And essentially, I mean, it's collecting near-shore data that no one's ever got. Right. Uh, now, are they looking at um, salinity as well or no? 
Not yet. Yeah. I think the right now it's just pH and uh, GPS. Okay. Uh, down the road there will be dissolved oxygen. P. I'm sorry. Right now it's only temperature. Right. Um, and GPS. So we're looking pH at pH. Yeah. Yeah, and then dissolved oxygen. I don't know if salin. I don't. I think salinity might be on the way, and they're also going to look at chlorophyll. Interesting. And through some, you can do some cross calculations to kind of get some other measurements out of those. But really, it's it's, it's really technology. At, oh, it's fantastic! Yeah, and uh, you know, it's at an, an early stage, but I think it has a lot of potential to really just to provide some cool understanding about what's going on Absolutely. in the near shore. Because right now, the near shore, like hyper near shore, is really understudied. It's hard to do bathymetry because of all the air bubbles mm-hmm. using traditional methods, and nobody really wants to pay for it because it right. changes so much, especially yeah. sandy beach breaks. Sure, sure. That's surfing mindset. No, that's but. interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Wikipedia is a good kind of analogy, too, because as yeah. well as you know evaluating the potential trajectory of these systems in the sense that, like, hey, it was fascinating and it was amazing to get information early on, mm-hmm. but there was definitely, you know, it, it was pretty spotty in terms of accuracy right. and... and um, uh, whatever reliable sources, but then over time, you know, I, my brother um, is a molecular biologist, and he used to, you know, come down on it hard. I think you know, early days, as, as and rightfully so, yeah. people did. As far as you definitely wouldn't be using any primary sources right, right. from Wikipedia. But that being said, he made some comments to me recently. He's like, no, you know what? Even these days, like, pe- there's good. so many people. We've passed that threshold where yeah. people are checking it, and people who should be checking it are checking it, and they're keeping it, you know, the integrity high. And now it's actually this amazing resource. You know? So I think that calibration, that QAQC, is really important. Right. And we actually kind of do that through citizen science. We have a program called Urban Tides where we encourage people to go out um, and take photos of really high tide events, mostly mm-hmm. king tides, but could be a high storm event with on a high tide. And those photos get uploaded to this database that we use. We have access to uh, USGS researchers mm-hmm. that are building flood models for sea level awesome. rise and just storm modeling. Um, so looking at the interaction between dry land and, and the water. Yeah, and just yeah so you can get a, if you get a photo of, hey, this is a seven foot high tide with three feet of swell at this beach and mm-hmm. it's you know maybe impacting this parking lot or mm-hmm. a bike path. We can actually the USGS researchers can look at that photo and go to their you know seven foot sure. scale it up model yeah. and look at like okay is in our model is the ocean getting to that bike path that it did in reality right and it's you can use the you can use all this information from people who are out there that's experiencing this that's to help so calibrate cool. models and yeah. you know you can do it vice versa where the people are making the models right um, do the it's it's a great time in science I mean it's, it's very cool. very exciting. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it really progresses. I think, I mean, technologies move so fast nowadays that uh, I, I think data vis- visualization and the use of GPS is going to be like the next level. Yeah. And it's cool because obviously, you know, as we said in the beginning of this topic, that one of the positive takeaways of this is it is kind of leveling the playing field for, you know, ordinary, you know, non credentialed people to have us have a say in the conversation and to play a role that could be important um, however obviously there's there's risks involved too yeah. with, with sourcing this information I mean what do you see being like if you were to break it down like the, the major pros and cons of using citizen science man I think <laughs> I think the only I mean the, the pros is that we can just get so much data I, I think the only con would be is, is exploiting that data or, you know, violating data permissions and privacy. Huh. Um, I, you know, in, in every science 
use, uh, like environmental science use, coastal environmental science use sure. that I've been aware of. You know, everything that's really known about the user is pretty scrubbed. Like all you get is maybe a username and uh-huh. then you get like all the GPS. No other demographic information or anything? Only if they like provide it sure. to you. it's all voluntary. Uh, I mean, the stuff with Facebook was pretty scary, I think, right. for everybody. Yeah. And uh, I, I could see people being hesitant about it, but it is, yeah. really the, the idea is all to like provide more tools and more access points to education and knowledge to folks Sure. because really science is, is an observe, you know, you're making observations of stuff over time and right. then making inferences of it. So if you have everybody looking at a pot of water boiling on a stove, like with a thermometer, at different elevations like that would be interesting because you can see right. like how the boiling point changes at different elevations and yeah. like that would be pretty cool yeah and then you know you start people to think about pressure and partial pressures and like what is altitude and how and how deep is the ocean and like how does that impact where we are depending on the time of year maybe so kind of spawning further i mean i think that for me that's the hope i'm biased because that's yeah. where my mind goes sure. to um I, I don't i know there's well, not I'd not everybody optimist. yeah optimist, <laughs> but i know not everybody's Seems pretty reasonable bias <laughs> like super curious about the natural world or anything like that but yeah you know i i'm i'm a believer in the anthropocene like humans have changed mm-hmm. this planet pretty right. dramatically right on, on, on almost on a geological scale and so the threat of losing biodiversity it's really scary to me. So I, I, I think getting people out there documenting right. bugs, birds, trees, plants that are around yeah. their environment is really cool and can kind of help us maybe limit the impact that we're going to be doing on, on that. Yeah, yeah. And mitigate the risk to having yeah. you guys overseeing and working together with that. Yeah. It, it's, it's an I access mean, point. It, you know, so with the Sea Grant Foundation, you guys obviously do a ton of environmental policy work, it's like that. Mm-hmm. What would be some um, examples of, of some kind of core issues or areas that you guys are focusing on where you could involve citizen science and, and or what role do you see that playing in, in the projects you guys are Yeah, so we, we have like the urban tide ones, I'm, urban tides I mentioned. Uh-huh. We're looking at starting some more coastal profiling, uh, beach profiling, getting people out, monitoring widths and you know elevation changes of beaches within, we're looking at LA County right now, but potentially, potentially expanding it and maybe using some drone technology because that's actually like the cutting edge of surveying right now is going into drones. Of course. Um, so I'm, I'm really yeah. thrilled about that because you can just do really cheap mobile strike missions almost of, hey, there's a big storm coming. Let me go measure this beach Real before the storm, yeah. during the storm, after the storm to see how the sand changed, how the beach changed over time. And that can help inform how we manage that beach. Right. Um, I think I'm, I'm hoping to pursue that more uh, through surfing and using citizen science that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think we'll be we'll be doing a lot more with citizen science. Uh, we're very urban focused. Our our program's very urban ocean is mm-hmm. like the theme that we work on, and it's just like crazy statistics about LA County with. I think if we were, if LA County was its own state, we'd be the eighth most popular populated state. Wow! So there's a oh lot of people God. living in a one space, <laughs> yeah. and that's why it feels like such a. That's banger. why it feels that way. Uh, but that's why I'm always screaming when I do. Yeah, but connecting those inland communities to the ocean, sure, 
I, that's kind of, I think, where we're really going to try to make some strides. And, and, and the, when you say the connecting them, what do you mean? So they're already connected now. You know, the ocean, or the air they're breathing, right. probably, you know, a third of it came from the ocean about last time I checked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what they're discarding in the streets going into going the ocean. The ocean yeah. Potentially, there's going to be transportation, socioeconomic changes in the future that can promote them actually getting there. Sure. Because there's there's a lot of people in LA County that have not been, you know, that have grown, lived in LA the, the whole time and never been to the beach. Sure. And connect closing those gaps, both both from access to and it's an important that this exists regardless if you go to, you right. know, if you and I maybe we'll never get to Antarctica, but I think we can all we can be like, oh, it's still important that those animals exist or those, sure. that land exists and sure. that it's not contaminated uh-huh. with trash. Or So connecting them both literally and figuratively yeah, in the sense yeah. that they are gaining an appreciation and awareness exactly. of the connection and the cycle. So I, I think that's really where a lot of just ocean conservation and ocean science needs to go in right. the future right. and now. But uh, Well, on a much um, more condensed scale and a much more digestible subject, I guess, but we were talking about the Cardiff, you know, restoration yeah. project going on here in North yeah, County, San Diego. Um, maybe we, maybe you could delve into that a little bit as kind mm-hmm. of a case study example of like your role specifically that you play in terms of the kind of integration of these different components. Yeah. So Car- Cardiff is a really, and I know you had Timbo on here. Right. That was kind of, I was like, oh, talk cool about it. your take yeah. on it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really interesting project. Um, it's, it's complex with the way the, and I don't know too much about San Elijo Lagoon's dynamics, but mm-hmm. my understanding is the restorations taking place in part of the back side of the lagoon that mm-hmm. needs, that has had traditional um, dredging because it silts up from inland sources of sediment. Mm-hmm. And that sediment has been applied to the beach front this past couple months mm-hmm. um, in a pretty massive nourishment, I think, on the order of like 300 thousand cubic yards whoa ballpark wow don't quote me i think it's around there uh it's a good amount of sand and then the cardiff reef living shorelines project which will take place on the more south end it will be installing what have been kind they're very novel but they're being called cobbled berms so a lot of these beaches especially beaches by lagoon mouths river mouths traditionally best surf spots in the world right you're getting a really good amount of sediment transported by that creek system, by that river system. And it's producing all kinds of sediment from really fine silts, which you don't really want. Right. They're, they get suspended. That causes a lot of turbidity. Mm-hmm. Those kind of go away naturally. <coughs> Excuse me. But they, they come down. Then you have the nice speech sand, and then you're starting to get bigger pebbles and cobbles. Yeah. So these cobbles, they can move and provide stability to the sediment on top of them. And that's the idea. There'll be two large sets of cobble berms that are buried um, and then sand applied on top of them. Then a couple dunes formed through construction, but also putting on some native dune vegetation to promote the dunes expanding to provide that storm buffer. And dunes are fantastic. The, The way dunes work on a beach are so cool, um, just like preventing storms, but also providing sand for the beach, changing from summer to winter, mm-hmm. and how that whole process plays out in a natural way, a natural way versus now we're trying to like engineer it is going to be really interesting. 
and I think the project has a pretty high likelihood of success. Like, there's all the right players involved. Um, Ocean Protection Council it funded is funding the, the main portion of the project, the construction of it. The, the State Coastal Conservancy is doing a lot of the project management of it. Then you have um, state parks, I believe, is involved. You have the city of Encinitas. San Alejo Lagoon Conservancy are a main project partner. And I believe Moffin and Nickel are the consultant on it. Wow. And uh, it's, it's a pretty big comprehensive project. Really, the only one that it's kind of comparable to is the uh, Surfer's Point project in Ventura. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just by the Ventura River Mouth. Yeah, the top. Um, there's... Uh, some of the parking lot was removed, I want to say 2013. Yeah. And then kind of similar, like these cobble, sets of cobble pow- patches were installed, then sediment placed on top so of it. It's getting better and better there. It's, it's, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, There's a couple good storms. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's this newer, very newer type of beach stabilization that doesn't require riprap, revetment, seawalls, really big boulders. It's sure. It's the middle ground of just beach nourishment and then more engineered, more thoughtful sure. process of stabilizing the shore, but it's using a natural material. It's using these cobbles. And model, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's trying to model a, a more sure. a mouthy. Yeah, yeah. Of, of trying to understand, okay, this is going to change. How do we prevent right. it from changing too much before we can kind of control sure. it? Sure. Well, and one of the cool things about the Cardiff Project, you know, for me, my bias, obviously, is that not only are they looking for the environmental benefits, but they're taking serious consideration into the surf, you know, into the lifestyle of the demographic that is interacting with this. And and in relation, in this case, to specifically surf tourism, beach tourism seasonally. And I understand that, you know, with that comes an aggregate, you know, benefits the local economy and that translates, you know, as well. So I just think it's really cool that, it, that that's happening in our backyard, that we can look at that and go, wow, okay, we've got government, oh, you know, yeah. private organizations, government organizations, and then the public all coming together to say, yeah, we, we value this. We acknowledge that it counts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know too much about what's been going on the ground in terms of outreach, but I would hope that the surfers, whether right. it's just surf rider or, you know, there's a local surfing contingent that have been involved in the design and construction and then hopefully monitoring, which... Tim will be doing and um, you know follow through with the project right and, you know that's something that he and I have talked about a bit is a more comprehensive look at you know surf breaks and changing over time and engaging mm-hmm. citizen science and that's something I'm super interested in pursuing that's awesome be cool I mean as surfers and, and as avid ocean lovers yeah. um, you know what's what's something that we can be offering people as ways to become more a uh, little more attentive and, and more um, aware maybe of their natural environment and then also what can they do to kind of you know approach these issues yeah. if they see something you know what's one way we can empower them to become a citizen scientist in their yeah. own community you know uh, it's 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 everything it's using what has happened in the past so just re, you know getting asking older people in your neighborhood or maybe your parents or friends about like what's the history of this place like what what was this place like in the 90s and the 80s and the mm-hmm. 70s earlier you know in the 1920s like there there are resources for coastal photos or you know finding out how a city or a county was developed and that can kind of really help you understand oh this is why things are that way and mm-hmm. and that's what i found in, in la is uh even as somebody who grew up there you start reading 
Um, there's a great book called The King and Queen of Malibu about the Ringe family <laughs> and how really LA started becoming developed around the time of the automobile, um, really getting mass, produ- mass produced. Right. And long story short, you know, LA was designed for the car. And that's why it has its problems. Interesting. Is that public transportation was not incentivized. Like, we're going to be the city of the future of the automobile. And, you know, certain companies and organizations sure. fund certain um, kinds of lobby political and, campaigns yeah. and oh, yeah. things get built the way they got it's still built. Still going on today. Uh, definitely still going on today. <laughs> but, you know, you can start at least if you, if you, I found it very helpful to look at the past because you uh-huh. can kind of see it play out more. Yeah. So even, I mean, you can see it play out, which can help you be better about how you approach it yourself yep. right now. Yeah. You know, you can, as we all know right now, if you go look at a politician, you can see who's donated to their campaign. Sure. And that might help frame your ideas about why they're voting a certain way or the other. Yep. Um, you can go look at, you know, hey, this beach just got slammed by El Nino, and that's why the state or the local government's looking at beach nourishment options because it just lost a lot of sand. It's a temporary fix. That's that sand they're going to put there that's really expensive. It's going to be more expensive in the future, but this is like a good buffer to maintain short-term benefits that you guys all want, that we all want. Like, we all want wide sandy beaches. They won't exist forever. And figuring out strategies where we can promote the short-term benefits that we want without inhibiting long-term benefits that we also want. Um, I think my advice would be just... Get get involved. See, figure out what the organizations and the agencies that are they're working in that space that you care about. Whether it's fish, whether it's transportation or water quality, and um, yeah. just kind of like see how decisions get made and who's making them. No, I like that. That's great. And and it's like you said, it's not only looking back historically yeah. to get a reference, but just a general perspective shift to a broader yeah. sense of looking at the whole picture. Right? Totally. So what are the systems? And, totally. Yeah. yeah. And especially, I mean, here, the, the coast is such an important part to, you know, I'll, I'll say everybody. Yeah, But absolutely. it's it's the, what I would say the reason everybody's living here and why. Rent For so sure. High or, you know, oh, yeah. There's so much traffic yesterday. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, we'd love to complain about it, but there's a reason why everybody wants to live exactly. here and why we live here. Yeah. And it's all for the same yeah. reason. Yeah. It's, it's, it has something to do with that big blue wet thing. It sure does. Somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Something to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, cool, man. I really, I really like what you could shed light on about that topic. That's really interesting. And um, I'll just wrap up uh, asking a couple of signature questions. Sure. And, uh, so I've been asking every guest these. And uh, first one is, what is your earliest memory of water? My earliest memory of water. I mean, I don't, I don't know how old I was, but it, it was definitely this one time where my dad took me out too far, like further than I would have been comfortable going um, with him or not. And... Just like getting getting the not a breaking swell, but kind of starting to shoal up and it lifts you up and just feeling like, oh, whoa, like that feeling I think it was like, a little bit. Yeah, that was like my that's probably the first thing wow. I can remember of, Where was where do you think that was? Uh, it was definitely in Manhattan Pier. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that we went there a lot when I was a kid. That's cool. Yeah. But you even remember the sensation of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I was it was weird. I was actually thinking about that yesterday for some <laughs> that's reason. Nice. That's right. Just like floating out there. So if there's one lesson that you've learned from your interaction with water that you could say has better enabled you to, as I put it, surf the waves of life, mm-hmm. um, what would that be? No one to fight and no one to go with the flow. Mm, I like that. Like whether it's you're paddling out and 
Ocean Beach on a big day or yep. you're trying to change a policy or write a memorandum yeah. or when to hold, when to surrender. Yeah. 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 And, and you know that, that a lot of that comes from knowing the place you're at and reading the conditions and, you know, being very, uh, cognizant about your timing. Uh, so Both externally t- and internally yeah. too. Your yeah. Conditions. Time, timing for so many things in my life I've seen has been like the main, weirdly the main factor associated wow. with it. Smarter, not harder, right? Something like that. <laughs> I mean, smarter, not harder, or, or just, you know, it's luck. luck yeah. t- like timing is everything, whether that's a girl or a surf break. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's only so much you can control yeah. at the end of the day. And yeah. Do, you, know, you assess the situation as best you can and try to react to it? Sure. Try and catch a wave. That could, that could be a whole hour-long conversation. Yes, it could. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, right on, man. Thank you. Cool. I appreciate it. This is awesome. That was super Keep fun. Keep up the great work. I love Thank you. Things. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for our show today. Thanks again for helping me to get to episode number 10. If you enjoyed what you heard and your time with us, please take the moment and subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. You can find our episodes there or on SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you were turned on by anything in today's episode, please take the time to tell a friend or a loved one about the show. It's listener recommendations and support from people like you that make the show possible. As always, if you want to support the show even more, you can buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. If you're interested in any of the guests or topics covered in the episode, you can find further information about them in the show notes section on iTunes or in the blog posts on our website. Lastly, if you have any thoughts, questions, or feedback, any ideas for future guests or topics, you can reach out to me directly on our website at www.offshoreinsightspod.com. That's Offshore Insights followed by the letters P-O-D.com. Today, I leave you with a song by Toro Imoa, titled Rose Quartz. Until next time, be well, keep in touch, and enjoy the ride.